0: listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss a little something known as Tartaria. What is it? (laughs) Where does it come from? Uh, Where did this whole story and narrative of a mud flood, a worldwide catastrophe, a mud flood that happened in the mid to late 1800s, where did this all derive from? And how did we end up with the narrative that we have today of The Mud Flood and the Great Tartarian Empire. Well, we're going to discuss those things tonight. And some of you who are uh, proponents of that theory might have maybe some issue with some of the things I'm going to say. But this is absolutely 100% the truth about the narrative that is Tartaria. And that being the case, uh, I think this thing has had enough of a run And it's time to actually lay down the truth about what this whole thing is about. So it may not make me popular with some people out there in the community, but you know what? Uh, It doesn't matter. The truth needs to be told. We're living in the age of deception. And this thing has taken on a new life of its own. Uh, Everything that can be lumped together under the umbrella of Tartaria has been lumped under the umbrella of Tartaria, and what it does is it stagnates true research into topics of importance. Uh, So we're going to get into that tonight, and we're going to cover some of the bases here because uh, a lot of people have been requesting uh, that I do so. Uh, We have an unpublished episode of Crow 777 Radio that at the time We didn't think it was a good idea to publish because we were afraid of the division it would cause in the community because of the popularity that this idea had taken on back then. Well, even since then, the idea and narrative of Tartaria, the great Tartarian Empire, and uh, the mud flood ideology has really, really soared to new places. And it's come up with some of the most absurd Kinds of things, kinds of ideas that uh, people have ever heard. Uh, So, where does it come from? What kind of evidences do they show here for this thing? And why has it taken on a life of its own in this way? And we're going to break it down here in a way that most people aren't prepared to look at this thing. So, that's the whole case here. So, we're going to get right into it here. So, first thing right out of the gate here mud flood, right? This is a very popular idea, that somehow or another, because our history is misdescribed to us, and, you know, there's no doubting that whatsoever, that our history is misdescribed to us, that uh, many people have come to the conclusion, by looking at various evidences, that perhaps there was this great catastrophe that took place somewhere in the time frame of just post-Civil War era somewhere around uh, the mid to late 1800s where there was this worldwide cataclysm that caused a a sort of reset in humanity that was undergone because of this advent of what they call a mud flood, a great mud flood, a worldwide flood that uh, buried buildings and cultures and decimated populations and things like that. Now, I don't think I need to tell you there's really no concrete evidence of a worldwide flood in the mid to late 1800s. Now, we do have, when we look back through history to earlier times, times before the written records and stuff like that, where we could say, quite possibly, yes, there may have been a worldwide or nearly worldwide type of a flood scenario that could have happened. Now, were there large regional floods? Yes, there were, and I think this is one of the things that supports the whole mud flood narrative here, going back and looking at the 1800s as as a time frame for this. Because in 1862, there was a massive regional flood in the western United States that affected California, Nevada, and many other areas out west. Uh, So this might have kind of lent itself to the mythology that has become the mud flood narrative. So with this being the case, where where did this idea first arise from? What popularized the idea of the mud flood? Well, in order to understand this, where this came from, we're going to go back a few years. We're going to go back to the year 2012, when a gentleman named Roger Spur came forward with his idea that he called mud fossils. So what are mud fossils? Well, Roger Spur... He was looking at various configurations around the world, rock formations and uh, things like that, landforms, and he noticed, hey, you know, if you look at this it, from just the right direction at just the right angle, it kind of looks like a human being laying down. Hmm, I wonder if there's something to that. So what Roger Spur did was he decided to collect samples of the, the dirt and the mud of the area and stuff like that, and he tested it. Now, it turns out in these various hundreds of areas where he tested, he had three tests come back positive for human DNA. So from this, he he came to the conclusion, and he thought, because he was a uh, student who very much liked the works of a guy named Velikovsky. And Velikovsky, back in the uh, 1920s and 30s, put out some pretty radical ideas about Some of the same things that Roger Spur talked about, that perhaps the history of the world as we know it was misdescribed to us, and we went through periodic catastrophes. Cataclysms. So he came up with some different ideas about cataclysms, uh, much like floods. So from Velikovsky's work, Spur came to the conclusion, hey, you know what? This must be petrified giant human remains. Because it tested positive that it, for human DNA in some of these samples. And it looks like a human. And we know that uh, trees, when they become flooded, when there's massive what they call mud floods, and this is a real ge- geological phenomena, which kind of lends credibility to some of the ideology here, it can quickly petrify living things in place. Uh, so this is what he theorized had happened here. That there were these giants, there was a massive flood event, and they were very quickly petrified. Uh, So he came up with this idea, and he founded what's called Mud Fossil University, which I think is still out there somewhere in the fringe realms. Now, he largely got ignored by the academic community because, well, I mean, let's face it, it sounds outlandish. Uh, So, uh, that being said, still a kernel of this idea held on within the overall, uh, I guess you could call it, conspiracy community, the conspiracy culture. So they liked this idea. So people went out. They started taking more pictures. Hey, you know what? This giant mesa looks like a tree trunk. Hmm. And we know that uh, with massive flooding and mud deposits and stuff like that, these things, living things, could become petrified very quickly. So we look around the world at all these different evidences. We see all of these different... uh, rock formations and land formations and stuff like that that looked like they could possibly be giant animals, giant people, giant trees, giant tree stumps. Uh, so this started to spur, <laughs> pun fully intended there, uh, some various thoughts within the community. So they started to theorize, hmm, perhaps here what's happened is there was this worldwide catastrophe that kind of got lost to our modern history and forgotten about and there was this flood event that uh, buried buildings because we that's another aspect of this. There's buildings that have windows and doors halfway covered up and uh, it looks as if buildings were built on top of other buildings and perhaps uh, this was something that had happened here because of a flood. And certainly this kind of stuff happens with regional flooding. Once again, I'm not denying that regional flooding happens. But you can't just throw that all together and say massive worldwide mud flood. Because there's buildings that have windows that are partially covered underground. Or it looks like they built something on top of another. By the way, folks, the Catholic Church is notorious. The Vatican was notorious for doing this. Tearing down old buildings and building on top of them. This has gone on from time immemorial old civilizations they always built upon other top of sites of other buildings that's that's always the way things have been done so just going with that kind of a narrative yeah you find you you dig down there's there's a door that was you know buried completely underground yes that happens sometimes with regional flooding or or they have these funky windows that just don't quite fit right and you know it goes underground well Those could be something completely different than what you think. It might not have been a window. It might have been a coal chute or something similar to that. That's another explanation there. I live here in the northeast where we are heavily a coal mining area. So many people had these coal chutes into their basement. And it's just a little window that's mostly underground. And only a little section of it sticks up above the ground. So that the the, the coal delivery service could dump your coal down a chute into your basement. So you have heat for the winter. Uh, So... This is something that happens, too. So you can't just base all of that as being evidence of a flood, of a massive mud flood worldwide. And this is largely what's been done. They've taken some things that seem like good kinds of little bits of uh, evidence that may kind of prove their scenario. And they lump it all together into one giant category and say, this is definitive proof that this, such a thing happened. So this is kind of how the whole mud flood idea came about. Roger Spur popularized the mud fossil idea, working, uh, you know, his scenario based upon the works of an older gentleman named Velikovsky, Emanuel Velikovsky, who had theorized in many of his works and in his writings that uh, there were these periodic cataclysms that happened, sometimes because planets collided and stuff like this. This is the kind of stuff the guy wrote about Velikovsky, that is. Uh, So, you know, this kind of harkens back to the same thing. These cataclysms happen periodically, and it resets human culture and population. So Roger Spur picked up on this idea, and both of these gentlemen, Velikovsky and Roger Spur, were both... Academics and both academics who were ardent fans of Greek mythology. And this will be hugely important as we continue through here. So, Roger Spur, if you look him up on independent.academia.edu, what's his specialty, Roger Spur? The mysteries of Greek religion. Interesting, right? So, this idea was put out there based upon older ideas. Once again, you could always draw these things back further and further in time. So many people have had these ideas of cataclysms, floods, things like that. Uh, But what's been done with this is the idea of a massive worldwide superpower empire with advanced technologies and stuff was attached to this. So if you go back to older times and older cultures, don't all older cultures have stories like this? I mean, we've heard of things like Atlantis and whatnot. Well, we don't have to look necessarily at Atlantis to get to the heart of what we're looking for here. What we can do is we could draw the lines of intent and connect the dots here to where the concept of Tartaria came from. We have the mud flood theory, right? So this this comes directly from the idea of the popularity of the mud fossil thing, which comes from the works of Roger Spur and his earlier predecessor, Velikovsky. And then from Velikovsky, you could trace it all the way back to ancient Greece because what essentially has been done here is they've constructed a modern-day mythology. And I can't harp enough about the importance of mythology. And if you don't know mythology, you miss... The boat. You miss the point. It's a symbolic type language. It hits upon something archetypal in the human mind. And it's meant to affect you in a certain way. So when you're seeing these stories now about this this culture that uh, had this massive worldwide empire that uh, got destroyed by this mud flood and defeated by uh, the, the powers that be today and buried and all evidence of them wiped away... Well, that's all based upon an older story, an old mythology. It's a new mythology built upon the old, and it's the same old mythology. And I will connect the dots here as we proceed. But first of all, let's look at what we have now. So the evidence is here. They say worldwide mud flood sometime in the mid to late 1800s, which there's really no evidence for. Yes, there was large regional flooding (laughs) during that time frame, which probably led to some of the credulence of the theory. So this worldwide mud flood, or this alleged mud flood, which there's no evidence for, allegedly happened so quickly that it was able to petrify living beings and living things very quickly, which is a recorded natural phenomenon that does happen when you have massive flooding and there's a lot of mud and uh, dirt and everything with it. That does happen. It'll fossilize something very quickly and petrify it. Mostly trees and stuff like that, but it has been recorded. So they're claiming that this massive flood, this is what happened. So now we have these evidences all over the world. We have these mountain ranges that look like giants because they were literal human giants, right? That were there and they got flooded and, you know, they just happened to be laying down in that position at the time. And they got petrified that way and then they became what we call mountains. So, this this is what's theorized, and and I'm I'm simplifying it, and it, it sounds silly to me. I'm sorry if I snicker here and there, because it sounds silly. Uh, so, yeah, then we have giant mesas and stuff like that. They do. They look like, you know, tree stumps. I mean, I'm not going to deny it. it looks like a tree stump, sure. Does it mean it's a petrified tree stump? No, absolutely not. And the logic for this is, well, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. Here's another theory, folks, okay, for anybody who thinks about these things with a critical mind. We're all created by the same factors. Manifestation here in this realm, in this world, happens in various ways, but they all follow the same patterns. All you have to do is look at the golden ratio, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Look at how flowers grow. They always grow in the same proportionalities. And this has to do with something called the Fibonacci sequence. 1, 1, 2, 3, 5 are the first several numbers of it. Uh, so it, it grows by this ratio. So all things kind of grow from this ratio. This even applies to things like crystals and minerals and stuff like that too. It's all part of the inherent creation. Okay, The creator created all of these things... In much the same way to manifest in this place. So is it really that unreasonable to think that a rock formation could possibly maybe form in the same way that say a tree forms in in the same grows in the same type of of fashion when we know we've seen this this is observable crystals and various minerals develop this way and Trees grow this way, animals grow this way with this same proportionality. We see all these things in nature. So it's a fingerprint of the creator. It just means there's a, a, a the same creator. Doesn't mean it's the same thing. Doesn't mean I'm a tree because, you know, I have the same proportionality as a tree, right? And, and that's the whole concept here. So because it's got the same fingerprint on it, doesn't mean it's the same thing. Uh, that's another way to look at it. But this is largely what's been done. They've taken this narrative. They said, okay, well, it's it's logical that, uh, you know, in, in a giant flood where there's a lot of mud, things become petrified. Perhaps this is what happened. So Roger Spur went out and looked, did several hundred tests, had three of them come back positive for DNA. And he claims in his studies that they... They, they did tests and stuff for contamination and stuff like that. And everything tested negative for contamination. It seems it's it's very sketchy kind of data to base that hypothesis on. Three. Three positive DNA results that were human in some of these rock formations he tested. So uh, with that being said, he thought it was credible enough evidence to put forward this theory. And he did. And he was a big fan of Velikovsky's work. And like I said, his specialization was in the Greek mysteries. So what other interest is there in this with the Greek mysteries? Velikovsky was also a scholar of the ancient Greek mythology as well. To get back to the point here. So we have this theory wherein they claim this mud flood happened. It petrified these beings, these giants, stuff like that. Is there evidence of giants? Well, there have been newspaper clippings and stuff going back as far as uh, the mid-1800s where this was a commonplace thing, where people were reporting finding the remains of giant humans all around the world at that point. And much of this evidence was uh, taken in by the Smithsonian, and we really don't know what happened to it. It's probably in a basement somewhere at at the Smithsonian. Uh, This is what the claim is of of some people and an excellent book is by a gentleman named uh, Richard Dewhurst and it's uh, called something to the effect of the ancient giants that ruled America or something like that where he documents the evidence of giants, right? Uh, So is there evidence of giants? Perhaps. But is there evidence of 200-foot-tall giants that now are mountain peaks? (laughs) Not really. Uh, Unless you believe Roger Spur and his three positive DNA tests. Uh, Then, maybe. Okay, so they make these claims. They have some sketchy kind of uh, data to back up their claim uh, in some of these things. And people begin to question it because it just sounds ridiculous. And a lot of it can be very easily debunked uh, just by using common sense. So this creates a further divide in the truth community, the greater truth community, the greater research community like this. And people get bought into the idea because, well, hey, they have evidence, right? They have evidence that may or may not be credible. Uh, So then what happens is sometimes that evidence gets a little too sketchy for them. So then the next big portion of this gets adopted into it. Now, what's the next portion that got adopted into this narrative? Well, now we have the melted buildings claimed, right? (laughs) Now, this just sounds absurd. Maybe it wasn't a worldwide mud flood. Maybe it was some kind of a plasma, I don't know, fiery cataclysm. Once again, you have the idea of the cataclysm, Right. Uh, just trace it back to Velikovsky's work once again, the cataclysm. So the idea of uh, this big cataclysm, but this time it's not mud flood. It's, uh, you know, some kind of a plasma event or uh, something that was created heat hot enough to melt giant buildings. And now those are the mountain ranges and stuff. <laughs> so because, you know, it kind of looks like it, it was constructed or something like that. So maybe it was, and it's a melted building. I, I honestly don't know <laughs> where uh, that kind of thing came from. So <laughs> that that just on its on the face of it sounds ridiculous. But so the the idea of giant giant animals, giant humans petrified in the mud starts to sound a little bit yeah, not so not so likely to some of the people. So now they come up with the melted buildings claim, right? But where does all of this go back to? All of this traces back to one particular thing here when we're looking at it. All right, They claim that this was all in order to or was all designed to wipe out this uh, this race, this, this great empire that existed, right? This great Tartarian empire with these advanced technologies and something cataclysmic happened and wiped them out and in their place came the modern era with the modern rulers in place. And they tried to erase all of their history. And they tried to tear down all their architecture Uh, and the stuff that they couldn't tear down, well, they made world expositions around it. ...and claimed that they built it in, a, in several weeks or something. Uh, this is the claim, okay? So now this is the claim within this narrative. And, you know, when you, you look at this narrative... ...it also doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. And I'll tell you why it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Because they attempted to go back and find this great empire... ...and they identified it as the Great Tartarian Empire... And where did this come from, the idea of the Tartarian Empire, the Great Tartarian Empire? Where did Tartaria come from? Well, you see, folks, on some of the older maps, a large portion of Asia was described as Greater Tartary. And this was pretty much the only evidence of, you know, an empire of sorts named Tartaria, which really wasn't an empire. It was just... What the English-speaking ignorant Western Europeans called it was the Great Tartary because they, they didn't know what else to call it. It was many different uh, regions and cultures all lumped together on this one giant part of the map. Uh, so with that being the case, they, they went ahead and they called it the Great Tartary because it was, you know, this, this one large area. This is what it was labeled on the maps, okay? And there wasn't much known by Western culture about it. So here's the thing. So it was called the greater tartary on the maps. So some researchers looked at that and thought, well, this is weird. What happened to this giant country that used to be there? So they started digging a little and they, they dug in a way wherein it was one of these things where they took something they found, took it completely out of context and built a whole mythology around it, folks. And we're going to cover that right now. Because this is where Tartaria comes from. It goes back to a declassified CIA document, declassified in 1999, a document from June of 1957, titled National Cultural Development Under Communism. I have this document, folks. I've read it. I've analyzed it thoroughly. This is where the idea came from. And early on in the Tartaria narrative, they claimed that this is where they found out that there was this great Tartarian Empire, because they saw it in this this CIA document. They were covering this up. They were covering this up, right? The CIA and the KGB, the Russians were covering it up. The U.S. was covering it up. They knew about it, see? But here's what the document says, and I will read it to you verbatim here. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read the portion wherein it pertains to Tartaria, and I will read you the part out of context first, the way it's presented within the Tartarian narrative, and then I'll read it to you in context so you could understand what's been done here. It says here, I'll read from this portion on, the fact is that the communists condemn and therefore prevent the publication of all Muslim literary works, except those few which extol the virtues of Russia and the Russians. Such is the manner in which the communists respect Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim national and cultural institutions. Or let us take the matter of history. Pay attention, folks. Here's the part I will read to you. That is the part that's taken out of context by those that put forward this Tartaria idea. Or let us take the matter of history, which, along with religion, language, and literature, constitute the core of a people's cultural heritage. Here again, the communists have interfered in a shameless manner. For example, on the 9th of August, 1944, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, sitting in Moscow issued a directive ordering the parteries Tartar Provisional Committee to proceed to scientific revision of the history of Tartaria to liquidate serious shortcomings and mistakes of nationalistic character committed by individual writers and historians in dealing with Tartar history. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So that is the portion of the text that they take to prove that there was this great Tartarian Empire... And governments of the world conspired to cover it up. Okay. This is where it comes from right here in this CIA document. Let me continue reading, though. So it says, In other words, Tartar history was to be rewritten. Let us be frank was to be falsified in order to eliminate references to great Russian aggressions and to hide the facts of the real course of Tartar-Russian relations. And this was no isolated case. In every Muslim area within the USSR, historians on orders of the Communist Party have rewritten history to distort the facts so that the Russians appear always in a good light. Needless to say, histories which present the facts truthfully have been withdrawn and destroyed so that the present and future generations of Muslims are forever denied the chance of learning the true facts of their nation's past. Okay, so I'm going to pause there. So, did you catch that? This is about Russians' relationships with the Muslim culture that lived in the area. What they did is they were trying to rewrite their history to make the Russians look more favorable in the eyes of the Tartarian population there. Of those populations. Now they did go in and they've destroyed mosques. This is a recorded thing. This was the Bolsheviks when they took power. They went in, they destroyed mosques, and they, they did a number on these various communities because there were a lot of Muslims in that area, and that's primarily who lived in this region that was known as Tartaria or Tartary. They were the Muslims. And the Russians, the Communist Party, you see, if you know anything about communism, they know, you know they don't want any religion to be put in front of the state. Okay, The state comes first. So this is why they did the things they did. So they treated these Muslims very poorly, but then they wanted to change the historical records to scrub all that, to make it look as if they didn't treat them badly. Now this does not mean that there was this advanced technological civilization of Tartarians, the great Tartarian empire that lived there and was destroyed by a cataclysm of some sort, and that was covered up. No, not at all this was governments doing what governments do revisionist history rewriting how they interacted with those people there now if you go and look at the us as an example here what are we taught about how we've interacted with different cultures through the years look at the uh, what's happened here with the american indian culture right the native american cultures Well, our history books try to present things in a very PG kind of way to us and present it in a way where it looks like, uh, you know, our our government and stuff, we're the good guys. Well, we wanted these poor people to learn the truth about things and, and be able to live in a modern society. They were backwards, you see. They didn't believe the same things we did, and we tried our best to preserve their culture, so we moved them to these reservations and stuff like that, but... You know, you don't really learn much about all the massacres and stuff that occurred. You don't learn about all these different things in context. You don't learn about our treatment of other nations in more modern times that we've gone to war with or gone into conflict with. You don't hear about the other side, do you? You only hear about the rah-rah America's good side. They need democracy. They hate us for our freedoms, don't you know? This kind of thing. Well, you don't think the Russians did the same thing, especially under the Bolsheviks, under communism? Well, they wanted to be seen in the the very best of lights. So this is what they did. It says, Such is the manner in which communists respect Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim rational and cultural institutions. So what had happened here was they went in and they rewrote the records, the history books, to make it look like they treated these people fairly and that these people were ungrateful. And that's the way it looks in Russian history books. So <laughs> that's what's been told here. That's all this CIA document is looking at. Because look at what's the context of the document. National Cultural Development Under Communism. So it was about an internal conflict in the former Soviet Union. Okay. The greater part of what's called Tartary was taken in by the Soviet Union. They treated the Muslims that were native there very badly, and they rewrote their history books to make it look like they treated them in a more fair kind of way, because they tra- treated them like second-class citizens. But they wanted the Communist Party to be looked upon favorably by future generations, so they rewrote the history of what happened there. It wasn't that they went in and uh, were covering up this massive technological culture that lived there, okay? That's not what happened at all. So this is where the idea of Tartaria comes from. Now, there's a further point to the idea of Tartaria, and there's a very specific reason why the area that's known as Tartaria was selected to be the forerunner in this mud-flood narrative, this overall narrative that's become the big umbrella under which everything's thrown. Because, you see, when we go back and we look through history... We always hear claims of an advanced civilization that existed before us, sometime before us. So what's happened is to make this more acceptable in the modern era to the uh, modern mind, to make it something that's more to our fancy in the modern era, they decided they would try and pull the mythology a little bit further forward in history, make it closer to us in some way, and throw in speculation of some fantastic culture that lived before us, this culture of giants with advanced technologies that built buildings that generated free energy. And they, they threw all this together under the same blanket here that they call Tartaria, and this further elevated the mythos. You see, it captures on something in the human mind. It captures something archetypal in the human mind because you want to look at this and think okay there's hope in this right we find hope in the concept that there was this advanced civilization before us and maybe we could learn something from them we could find ways of doing things that they knew that now we don't know anymore so it gives people this type of hope in this idea that we can achieve this stuff we've done it before we can achieve things again So it gives people not only this this kind of hope, and it gives them this this look back that this culture, they must have taken some missteps somewhere and were destroyed by the modern culture. And this is kind of one of the things that's ingrained, that the people in positions of power today, the ones in charge, well, they know something we don't. They're hiding it from us, which... I would say that's true to some degree, right? But is it really the thing they're hiding from us? Is it this Tartaria? Is that where they want you to look? Why do they want you to look there? Well, let's think about Tartaria. Let's think about the idea that brought about the idea of Tartaria as being an umbrella under which all these different facets of things were thrown, things like free energy generation and uh, Gothic buildings, Gothic cathedrals, All of the ancient uh, and older medieval-type buildings and stuff like that. All the architecture. All of these things were thrown under this umbrella. Why? Well, what is Tartaria invoking here? Where did it come from? It came, Tartaria arose directly from this mud flood narrative. The mud flood narrative we traced back to Roger Spur with the mud fossil. Before him, Emmanuel Vilikovsky, who got a lot of his ideas of cataclysm and such from the ancient Greek myths. So both of these guys drew heavily from the ancient Greek myths. And the overall narrative itself, especially as it comes to Tartaria being selected as the the focal point for this, also harkens back to Greek myth. How so, you might ask? Well, it's a little something in Greek myth that's called the Titanomachy. What's the Titanomachy, you might ask? Well, let's read a little, shall we? The Titanomachy, in Greek mythology, was the great war that occurred between the Titans, the old generation of Greek gods and the Olympian gods led by Zeus. The war lasted for a total of ten years, ending in the defeat of the Old Pantheon, which was based on Mount Orthus and the establishment of the new one based on Mount Olympus. Now, during the time when the Titans, Titans, folks, going to pause for a second there, notice the allusion there, Titans, Giants, Tartarians were Giants, Tartaria, do you know what word Tartaria is derived from? Tartarus, where the Titans were imprisoned in ancient Greek mythology, When the Titans were in power, Uranus was the ruler of the universe. However, he caused the wrath of his wife, Gaia, after incarcerating some of her children, the Cyclopes and the Hecatonchires, in the depths of the earth in a a prison known as Tartarus. Gonna pause for a second there, folks. Tartarus, Tartaria. Are you beginning to make the connections yet? So, we see here, Gaia... Her children were incarcerated there. Her children were titans. The Cyclopes, from which the term Cyclops comes from. The ancient giants of Greek myth with one eye, the Cyclops. And there are some researchers out there, in the Christian community in particular, that predate this whole Tartaria thing, that were making similar speculations about giant civilizations that built many of these architectural wonders of yesteryear, and they called it Cyclopean architecture, instead of Tartarian architecture. And it's the same old thing, folks, all of it. So they called it the Cyclopean architecture. Uh, These were guys like Steve Quayle. If anybody's familiar with Steve Quayle, go back and look at some of his older work. He talked extensively about the giants, the Nephilim, and their, their, uh, their forebears, the ones that built many of these megalithic structures, allegedly. Uh, So this is the same old story, right? It's all based upon the Titanomachy of ancient Greek myth, okay? And maybe it's derived from elsewhere. Maybe there's an element of truth to it in our ancient past. Maybe there were some types of giants or some such thing. Maybe, uh, Maybe it's all allegory. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to really tell, isn't it? But we're given these stories, and this is alluded to in the Bible with the story of the Nephilim and the Genesis chapter 6 experiment, and this is what those older Christian researchers had explored, this avenue of thought. So it's the same thing here. It's just the rebirth of the myth in the modern era, in a way where it becomes a little more suited to our modern sensibilities. So Tartaria, derived from the word Tartarus, the imprisonment the imprisonment place of the titans let's read on and read more about the story here and you'll begin to see more connections come together gaia decided to take revenge and created a giant sickle she then told her children to castrate their father in order to overthrow him only cronus or saturn agreed and after he formed a plot with his mother he managed to overpower his father. And castrate him. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. This also is an allusion back to ancient Egyptian mythology once again as well. This is the story of Osiris losing his manhood. The 14th piece. You see Osiris in the old Assyrian cycle. The story of of Isis, Osiris, and Horus. His body was cut into 14 pieces. And the 14th piece, his phallus, was lost. It was thrown in the, the river and eaten by the fish so isis crafted one out of gold and replaced it and reanimated her dead husband osiris's corpse and from that was birthed horus in the ancient mythology but this 14th piece this missing phallus this idea this castrated uh you know portion of uranus all these same ideas are the same archetype that's brought up within various secret society groups this is the last word in freemasonry folks that's what that represents the lost word in freemasonry Uh, not to lose too many people here i don't know how far some of you are along your journey in looking at some of the things taught by these ancient mystery schools but this is an important idea so we see here so cronus or saturn castrated his father uranus So, from Uranus' blood that fell on the earth, three sets of children were born, the Higantes, or giants, the Aranians, and the Melii. Well, from the blood that fell into the sea, the goddess Aphrodite was born. Cronus takes the throne. Cronus, or Saturn, took the throne from his father. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So this, if you go back and look at things through the, the texts and The uh, stories put forward by some of the other mystery school groups, like the Theosophists and stuff like this, this would be the next era. Okay, this would be what they call the the Saturn period coming forward now. All right, this kind of thing. They, They look at these things from all these different vantage points. You see, if you go and you study any of these occult things that these secret society groups teach, all of these things will start to line up for you. And the best place to look is ancient Greek mythology, or the Romanized version of ancient Greek mythology, and you'll see how they all align in the same archetypal story, over and over again. It's the myth representation of these things. It's just told in a slightly different way through the secret schools, and it represents other symbolic things. Uh, So anyway... Not to belabor that point. So Cronus takes the throne. Cronus took the throne from his father, but not before Uranus made a prophecy that his son would also be overthrown by his sons. Afraid that he would lose the reign, Cronus turned into the same tyrant god that his father was. He put his brothers back into Tartarus, and he also ate his own children in an effort to prevent the prophecy from becoming true. However, his wife, Rhea, tricked him and saved her youngest child, Zeus, from his father's paranoia. She hid Zeus in a cave in Crete, where he was raised by a goat, Amalthea. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. A goat. How many times have I gone on about the goat archetype? This is the pan archetype. This is a very important archetype here. So Zeus was raised by a goat. Who's the goat? The greatest of all time, right? We see that trope in the world today. Well, it's it's there for a reason, folks. Now, as a little side note, Rhea. This would be Saturn's wife in this, or, or Cronus's wife in this myth. Rhea was actually traced back to a a real historical person here by the reverend alexander uh the bishop alexander hislop uh, in in a book that he wrote and Rea was the wife of the biblical nimrod so this is identifying some historical figures of the past that are um i I should say semi-historical figures okay because many of these things get blended through time, and that's all the nature of mythology. So maybe there were some real, actual living people that had the names, but uh, they became mythologized in certain ways. So Nimrod was synonymous with Cronus, Saturn, Osiris. All of these were considered to be synonymous with Nimrod when you go back and look at the Bible. So who's Nimrod? Well, this is the guy that uh, decided to organize the people to build the Tower of Babel. This was the, the mighty hunter before God. Mighty hunter. Who's that also? That's Orion, right? You see how all these mythological archetypes, they're all the same thing. They're all described the same way. And they're all traceable back to these various different stories. Now, you know, these are semi-historical people, semi-historical figures. So it's, it's hard to really prove or disprove anything as far as that goes. But the important thing is the story being told. You see? Because this hits upon something archetypal in the human soul, the human spirit, the human mind, something that we recognize on an unconscious level, and we react to in a subconscious level, which eventually alters our conscious behavior. So with that being the case, there's a reason they put these mythologies forward. So let's get back to the, the story here, the Greek mythology, the story of the Titanomachy, the God's Rebellion. When Zeus grew up, he became his father's cupbearer, without revealing his true identity. Helped by Metis, the titan goddess who later became Zeus's first wife, he gave Cronus a mixture of wine and mustard, causing him to vomit one by one the children he had swallowed. When all of his brothers and sisters were freed, Zeus gathered them and convinced them to start a rebellion against their father. So the gods versus the titans. Thus started the Titanomachy. Zeus released the hecaton and the Cyclopes from Tartarus and asked their help against their brother. They all agreed. The hecaton started hurling rocks against the Titans while the Cyclopes created the famous Thunderbolts for their leader, Zeus. Themis and Prometheus were the only Titans that fought on the side of Zeus. The Olympians win. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. So now you notice Zeus and those titans that decided to renounce their titanship and become gods now refer to themselves as Olympians. And this is hugely important in the modern era because those people that run the world today consider themselves the Olympians. So this is the displacement of the old world powers with the new world powers. This is the rise of the new world order, folks. That's what this represents. Let's continue reading. The Olympians win. When the war ended with the Olympians on the winning side, all Titans except Themis and Prometheus were jailed in Tartarus and were guarded by the Hecatonchires. Zeus, along with his brothers Poseidon and Hades, divided the universe by drawing straws. Zeus won and became the king of the sky, as well as the ruler of mortals and gods. Poseidon became the ruler of the seas, while Hades, who drew the shortest straw, became the ruler of the underworld. This was the dawn of a new era in Greek mythology. So you see, what was the end result here? The old culture, the titans of old, those giants the powers of old. So essentially what happens is we have this war of the Titanomachy. The Titans were defeated by the Olympians, and those people in positions of power in this world today consider themselves to be the Olympians, you see. That being the case, they firmly cement their control here by burying the old world culture, the old world power, And they arise and create this new world order. So this is what it's about here. So the Titanomachy, the defeat of the Titans, and their burial in Tartarus. Their imprisonment in Tartarus, from which the name Tartaria is taken. You see, all these things are encapsulated in the story of Tartaria. They're the giants that are gone now. They're missing from the earth. They've been covered up. They've been hidden away, you see. Uh, So it's, it's hearkening back to this Greek myth, the archetype of this Greek myth. And what it does is it further establishes the credence of power of these people in control today. It further cements their legacy here, in their view. So they see it as the ultimate affirmation that they are firmly in control, that there are none that can oppose them. You see, because they defeated the old enemy here. They defeated Cronus and his minions. Cronus, Father Time. See, they've defeated death, aging. This is in their view, folks. This is what they think. They're setting themselves along this road uh, in this mythological archetypal way to be able to claim victory over these things. That's what they seek. They want victory. Victory. The Olympians, the ones that consider themselves the rulers of this place, they seek to conquer. Okay, they seek to conquer these things. Conquering death, conquering the grave, conquering all of these things, conquering the old way of things, the old age, the arrival of the new power. They see themselves as being firmly entrenched in power. They use this for that reason. So we have Tartaria is taken directly from the word Tartarus. And it's to invoke these ideas of Titans or Giants. And they've firmly attached that narrative to the Tartaria narrative. Giants, the Tartarians, they were Giants. They were advanced and powerful. They had mighty weaponry. They had mighty technologies. Just like the Titans and the gods of old, right? But yet they were defeated by those who are in control today, and utterly buried. You see, so that's the the legacy here, that they're trying to bring about in this new mythological form of the Tartaria narrative. So then they claim about the world fairs, right? That they the world fairs they they found these old buildings all over the place, and uh, they they just built the world fairs around them so people wouldn't get suspicious. Well, that, folks, there's nothing to really back that up, honestly. It it was very feasible for them to build a structure in a matter of weeks with enough manpower. And many of these world fairs, I mean, these are big events. There's a lot of people that, uh, you know, get paid an awful lot of money to put stuff like this together. So just to make that claim that this could not have possibly been built in, you know, a short several weeks... I would say go and look at things that have been done in China recently. Look how quickly they put together high rise buildings and stuff like that. Super fast, within a matter of weeks, sometimes days. They could have like whole communities built in weeks. They, they've done this. It's, it's not a marvel of engineering. It really isn't, especially, uh, you know, in, in the way that some of these things were designed. It doesn't mean that they were there already. This is just speculative at best when people make those types of claims. Uh, So, you know, there's nothing to that either. So we have these different narratives that go along with it. And the next one that's become really popular was the idea of orphan trains. You remember that narrative of the orphan trains? Well, this was an actual social program that occurred back in uh, the 80s. 1800s going into the 1900s, and there's actually a National Orphan Train Complex, a museum that's in Concordia, Kansas, that is dedicated to this. So what is this orphan train narrative? Where does this really come from? Well, the the people that put forward this Tartaria narrative and the mud flood idea, they claim that there were all of these orphans that uh, were lost their parents and stuff because of all this massive flooding and this catastrophe. Once again, going back to the cataclysm uh, motif here. So they claim that these orphan trains were all because of that. Uh, So here's the thing, okay? I'm going to read you directly from the National Orphan Train Complex Museum website. The Museum and Research Center are dedicated to the preservation of the stories and artifacts of those who were part of the orphan train movement from 1854 to 1929. The mission of the National Orphan Train Complex is to collect, preserve, interpret, and disseminate knowledge about the orphan trains and the children and agents who rode them. The museum's collections, exhibits, programming, and research will instill a sense of pride for writers and descendants, engage historians and researchers, heritage visitors, and the general public, and further promote understanding of this nationally significant chapter of cultural and social history. So, we have here the research here. Well there is no comprehensive list of orphan train riders we do not or we do have a database of approximately 7000 orphan train riders if you are interested in searching our database or looking up for research visit our research page and they have links here so folks here it is they have records of 7000 people that took place in this orphan train program certainly not enough to repopulate the earth from the 1800s and remember This happened over the course of 75 years. 75 years this orphan train program ran. 7,000 people. You do the math. Okay, That's less than 100 orphans per year that rode this orphan train. And what was this? This was a social program that was designed to take children... Unwanted or uh, underserved children from major city populations, in the, primarily the Northeast, places like New York City, whose families didn't have the means to take care of them. And what they did is they adopted them out to families out in the Midwest that were looking for children and wanted farm help. So they would adopt these children, they would put them on this train and send them out to the Midwest to be with their new adoptive families. That's what this program was. It was a social program. There was nothing that had to do with cataclysmic-type scenarios like giant mud floods or plasma explosions or whatever it is that allegedly melted the buildings and buried the giants in mud and petrified them and all of this stuff. None of that happened. This was over a 75-year period that 7,000 people, 7,000 orphans were adopted. Not a huge number, folks. Certainly not enough people to repopulate the earth from the mid 1800s on. But at any rate, <laughs> this is the idea of the orphan trains. Okay. So this was attached also to the Tartarian narrative here. And this is another part of the narrative. Okay. When you want to really break this down and look at the mythology of it all. The orphan trains are derived from the myth of Orpheus. Orpheus, once again in the Greek mythology, in fact, the word orphan is derived from the word Orpheus when you look at the etymology. So with that being the case, this is where the idea of the orphan trains came from, from the myth of Orpheus and his trip to the underworld. This is allegorized by the attaching of the orphan train movement to the mud flood narrative. The word "orphan," like I said, it's got its roots in the name of Orpheus. So this is inspired again from Greek myth and the story of Orpheus. If you're not familiar with it, is essentially this. Okay, Orpheus lost his love, and she was she died by via a snake bite, if I remember the story correctly, and was. Uh, you know, sent to the underworld. So Orpheus was really sad. And everybody said, well, you should find a way to get to the underworld and bring her back. So he went to the underworld and he he bargained with Hades. And Hades agreed, okay, you could take Eurydice, I think that was her name, Eurydice, you could take Eurydice back up to the, the surface with you. The only thing is, when you get up there, you can't look back. You can't look back at her until you're both up on the surface. So he leads her out of the underworld, to the above, to the world, back to the world here. And he turns around because he's so excited in his jubilation that they made it. And lo and behold, she wasn't quite up out of the cave just yet. So she was sucked back down to the underworld, lost forever from him once again. So this was the, the myth of Orpheus. So he lost his love forever when he looked back. His love had fallen back into the depths of Tartarus, never to return again. So this also has a lot of allusions to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, too, because uh, Lot's wife looked back at Sodom and was turned to a pillar of salt and was therefore lost forever. So this is how the story relates here. So the story of Orpheus, it relates to the mud flood narrative of how the old architecture and technologies can't be replicated anymore. They're lost forever, buried beneath the mud. Th- this is the equivalent of being lost and buried in Tartarus, like Euridice was. Euridice, also same root word for Europe. See, so the Europeans, they can't possibly find this technology. They can't possibly replicate this technology. See, it's been lost. It's been imprisoned in Tartarus with the Tartarians. This is the other. that's been encoded here uh, with the mythological tie so these are the various things that all connect and relate to this mud flood narrative this tartaria narrative and as time has gone on it's built up and built up and built up and they've started lumping all kinds of other things together with the tartaria idea so they started attributing things like the Gothic cathedrals to the Tartarians. Well, they built this, and they were they were free energy technologies, but we don't understand how they work today. We lost that. See, that's the whole Orpheus myth again. It's all lost, buried in Tartarus, you see. And there's no way to get that back. Well, here's the thing the Tartarians didn't build the Gothic cathedrals, folks. (laughs) I got news for you. Uh, Or did they build the pyramids or anything else? All these structures that they claim may have free energy type properties to them. And that's a matter of research for another time, right? Here's the thing. They've taken some of these ideas, these, these postulated ideas that may have Oh, some semblance of credibility to them in some way, shape, or form, and they've attached them to this ridiculous notion of this great Tartarian empire, and thus they've muddied the waters, pun absolutely intended here, for people. So when you go to research this stuff, you'll invariably come across somebody who's pushing this Tartarian narrative and they will tell you this is absolutely how it is. And they lost control of the, you know, the, the free energy generation or whatever. And it caused this massive cataclysm, this plasma, whatever, that melted the buildings or or whatever it is they've gone on to now, right? So this is what they'll claim. And all of this harkens back to the myth of Atlantis as well, because this is what's said to have happened at Atlantis. They Their technology and stuff got so advanced. And one day they just got so, so corrupt and out of control, and their technologies had advanced so far that they wiped out their entire civilization with their technologies. And that's what happened in this cataclysm. So you see, it's these same tropes that keep popping up over and over again. It's just the Tartaria narrative is trying to bring this closer to the modern era, to make it more attuned to our modern sensibilities. So that's what's been done here. They've taken the old myths, a couple of these different Greek myths, lumped them together, came up with the Tartaria idea, derived directly from the word Tartarus, folks, Tartaria, Tartarus. Go ahead, look it up. I I mean, do your homework with this. Go look at the mythology. I can't understate how important mythology is. And it's lost to our modern society. I really don't think anybody else has really picked up on the idea that this whole Tartaria thing is related to mythology. I haven't heard anybody else talk about this. I haven't. But this is absolutely what it's based upon. So when you understand that they leverage these mythological archetypes to steer our minds in certain ways, you'll understand the nature of this. It's a type of psyop in a sense. Now who's perpetuating the psyop? I don't know. I can't say for sure. And maybe it's not fair to necessarily call it a a psyop. It's definitely a mind hook. But where does it take you? It leads you down this train of thought where you're researching things. And what are you doing when you say you're researching things in this Tartaria narrative? Well, you're looking at buildings. Okay, here's this building that's this old architecture that we can't possibly build it today. how did they they move the stone and stuff to get there? How did they the craftsmanship's so good? It must have been these these giants that built this thing right this this big megalith or whatever it is and they they must have built it uh, in you know the certain ways that they did for free energy purposes and uh you know the the governments of the world are hiding this from us, and all of this stuff's been lost. You see. And you look at this, and you're attaching this to the Tartaria myth. And you go and you look, and then you find, you know, ridiculous things like melting buildings, mud floods. All of these things being attached to this. And where does it take your mind? Well, it entrenches your mind deeper into hypermaterialism, And this is something that's another way that they invoke archetypes. When you look at mud what's mud consist of? Mud consists of earth and water. Two primary philosophical elements when you go back and look at the four philosophical elements. Earth, wind, fire, water. Right. So we have earth and water which represent the physical plane in ancient metaphysics and air and fire always represent the spiritual plane in metaphysics. So mud flood It's directly designed to entrench your mind in materialism. So you're looking at these old mythologies, these old mythological tales, these archetypes, these stories, these narratives, and you're trying to attach real-world physical material things to it. So it's, it's entrenching your mind in this material paradigm this hypermaterial paradigm making you think in terms of what it's talking about here is a physical civilization that existed here that had all this advanced technology and was buried in the mud and is now gone and we're trying to find the evidence of that and we could find the evidence if we go out and we find these buildings that have the windows of the basements covered with mud right or covered with dirt uh, and this is what what they're they're pushing this is evidence you see it's physical evidence of this past civilization do you see how it's a mind hook and it's, it's, it captures your mind and it's all based upon nonsense? I shouldn't say it's based upon nonsense. It's all based upon these myths, the stories based on the myth. And the archetype of the myth is the important thing here. Okay, It's something primal that we all have. It's, an, it's the archetypal level that it hits us on. But it's designed to steer us astray in this case. Because all it's doing is further entrenching those who are in power in their seats of power by reaffirming their control here in this material paradigm. Because, see, if they keep you focused on this material world thing, trying to look back in history and find evidence, physical evidence, that this thing exists, when they have you chasing down a red herring, and you're not ever going to find it. But you might find little bits and pieces that might make you think that there's just barely the possibility there. And it keeps you further chasing these little crumbs down the rabbit trail with it. This is what it's about, because if they could keep you thinking in that regard, that you're looking for this physical world civilization that existed here prior, these giants, right... And perhaps what's been described in the Bible and perhaps what's been described in some of these other myths is not a physical world phenomena when they're talking about giants. Keep that in mind as well. But they have your mind entrenched in thinking in the material senses here. The material world, the the physical world. And these stories hit upon something on a more spiritual level. But they're designed, in this case with this story to get you to think in terms of the physical, the material. And that's what you're looking for when you're looking at this narrative. You're looking for this lost civilization that really wasn't there. See, that's where they got you. Now, there's a spiritual archetype to this, for sure. And that's what they have you chasing after, thinking it's, it's something physical you're going to find. It's like chasing a shadow, right? Chasing a shadow and expecting to catch it. You're not going to. That's what this thing has turned into. All right. Now, I'm not, not saying the people that uh, started following this trail had bad intentions. I don't think that's the case. I think it's just they saw some of the weak evidence and the weak points. And there was enough weak evidence that kind of seemed like it may be related somewhat with all the different things that they started to weave into the narrative here. That they thought perhaps, well, there's there's enough evidence there's a multitude of it, even though it's all weak evidence. There's enough weak evidence to you know, maybe suggest that when you lump it all together that something bigger is going on. And that's kind of the trap that they've fallen into. So once again, it's one of those things that has you chasing your tail, in, in a sense here. Like I said, it's like chasing shadows, expecting to, ch- to catch a shadow. It's going to have no logical good resolution for anybody. And all it's really been doing is creating more division among people because you have people bought into this idea that there was this old civilization and maybe there was a civilization way back in ancient times that existed before us that had more advanced technologies and stuff it's possible i'm not saying it's not but i don't think it was happening in the 1800s here folks over in you know a, a big portion of asia i don't think that's the case so this is what's been driven home By this whole narrative and people have really positioned themselves in a way where they've they've gotten so fond of this idea that they don't want to let it go and they keep coming up with more ridiculous things to justify perhaps their their biases and it's okay we all have biases when we look at this stuff we all have biases we we can admit that we don't all agree on everything and we're never going to, and life would be pretty boring if we did, wouldn't it? Uh, but at any rate, something like this, though, I, I just can't see a good resolution to trying to follow it to its invariable end, because it doesn't lead anywhere. That's the point. Like I said, I, I, I compare it to chasing a shadow. No matter how hard you try, you're never going to catch it. And that's what's gone on with this. We've had people spending years now, literally years, trying to dig ever deeper and deeper into this Tartaria thing and never coming any closer to any firmer proof that any such thing has ever existed and not reaping any benefit from it whatsoever. So that's the thing. It's it's a mind hook. So whether it's a, a deliberate psyop or whether it's just something that's been brought into the, the public frame of mind in that way, that, that's debatable. I don't know what the true motivation is behind it, but I do know what it represents. It's bringing forth the ancient Greek myth of the Titanomachy. That's what it is, and it's, there's a reason for this, and I think the reason has to do with entrenching the current world order in its position of power. By leveraging the minds of the people in a way that makes them look at something like this and think in terms of strictly the physical world in which we live. Because now we're thinking, okay, they've hidden history from us. So what do we not know? What are they not telling us? Was there this civilization before us that had advanced technologies and advanced culture and a better way of life? And they're hiding that from us because they don't want us to know about it? So they have us thinking in those terms rather than looking at this and understanding it as a spiritual allegory which is exactly what it is and it's put there and they've used it to leverage it against your mind to get you to think in a physical sense by the five senses not look at it from the spiritual side just from the physical side. This is what's been done with it and that's not to say that You know, all the myths are are bad or are there to uh, contort your mind or steer your mind into bad things in a bad direction. It's just the people that are leveraging this, what their intent is behind it and how they're using it and looking at the fruits that it's generated here. Uh, The Bible says you can know a tree by its fruits. What fruits has the Tartaria movement generated? Are they good fruits? I don't think they are. It's created division derisiveness rudeness it's created this tension that doesn't need to be there it's created pig headedness in a lot of people they don't want to say okay uh, i've i've been wrong maybe i've been looking at this thing from the wrong angle the whole time and that's okay i mean it's okay we could have disagreements about this stuff and maybe they they you know legitimately think there's there's enough evidence I personally haven't seen enough evidence to support this whole narrative. Nothing. Zero zip, zilch, nada. Not a shred. But of course, I recognized it from the very beginning for what it was. It was a mythological archetype being leveraged against the human mind to bring about some type of a change within, well, let's be honest here, this specific community. This community, whatever you call yourself, you know, a conspiracy theorist or analyst or whatever, or truther or whatever moniker you give yourself, anybody who's out there trying to find truth in many of these matters, to try to get to uh, the bottom of things going on in this world, it was designed as a hook for us. That's essentially what's happened here. It was a hook for us to, to suck us in and get us in fighting and not focusing on the bigger picture here. Because the bigger picture here is, you know, we're living in a time where they are just pulling stuff off left and right that most of the time we're missing. We're missing the point on and we're not calling out and we're not, you know, steering people to looking at that. Important things like digital IDs. And vaccine passports and all of these things, which we need to stand with a united front on. And we're not doing so. We're not doing so. So, with that being the case, they've created this division, this divisiveness. They've created this divisiveness within this community. And it's the old divide and conquer strategy that's been going on here. And we've seen how things have escalated just over the course of the past couple of years, throw in a lot of extra stressors into people's lives. And they have this little modicum of fantasy that they like to escape to. It's a form of escapism, too. Uh, so it's it's become an entertainment type of a, an outlet for people as well. And I'll, I'll admit, I, I like watching videos and stuff like that. It's, it's interesting stuff. But I don't see it as credible evidence. And that's the whole point here. There's no credible evidence to back it up. It's the leveraging of a mythology, of an archetype, to affect the human mind in a certain way. And when you look at the fruits that the tree has bared here, you see what the intent was. It wasn't a good intent. So I think it's fair to call it what it is. It's fair to call a spade a spade, folks. And I think that's what this whole Tartaria narrative is. So with that being the case, as somebody that thoroughly thinks these things out and researches these things before I make a statement on it, that's the conclusion I've come to. I reserve the right to be totally wrong on all of it. But at the same token, uh, I understand what it's led to. And I don't want to partake in the fruits thereof. So I think it was important to put this on the record officially even though it may create some tension or division in the community all the more. But I hope you understand and can look at what this is uh, because it's important. It's important to understand when we see something like this. Look for the mythological tie that binds all of it together. Because that's usually what's going on. If you could see the archetype of a myth being invoked in any type of narrative that's put out there, that goes for news stories, entertainment in the you know, the regular media, the movies, films, stuff like that. Or especially if you notice that there's this hot new topic that's you know, kind of cropped up all of a sudden within the truth community that's really going bonkers and through the roof, you'll know. Look for the mythological tie. Go back to Greek myth. See if you could make a connection to Greek myth with it. And then you might understand what's being leveraged here or what's being done. Might not bring you to a conclusion as to who's doing this or why, but it'll tell you certainly what's being leveraged here when it comes to stuff like this. But anyway, folks, that's all I really have to say about Tartaria. I don't buy it. I don't think there's enough evidence to back it up. And, you know, it it certainly doesn't... Stand up to the smell test, in my view. Uh, So I see what's been leveraged here, what it's all about. And I just thought I could communicate that to you folks tonight. So maybe you could have a little different view as to what this is, because people will just argue the physical points of it. The evidence-based points, like, oh, well, you know, flooded buildings... You know, the the basements are are covered and there's windows and doors that are covered by earth and and stuff like that that they've dug up. And we have these physical evidences. It's not a physical thing, folks, that's being done here. It's a mythology being leveraged, you see. So that's the thing. You could argue back and forth all day long. Now, certainly, um, regional floods occur and, you know, sometimes bury stuff in mud. That happens. That doesn't lend credence to this overarching narrative though. Uh, So that's the whole point here. Look for the mythology. Look for the connection to mythology in anything you see, and you'll have a little better insight as to what's going on with it. I assure you of that. Anyway, thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night. Coming December 16th, 2022, the new home for free speech, Free World FM, the alternative to the alternative. Keep on talking in the free world.